There's a moment there when you feel untouchable, invincible even, lucky, some might say. It could be because of big things. You might be at the height of your career or proud of how well your kids are doing or feel like you're finally getting somewhere in therapy. Or it could be the little things. You might have gotten that super close parking spot or won a giveaway or checked everything off of your to-do list today. Honestly, I had a moment like that recently where I was like seated at a basketball game, seated so that I wouldn't get hit in the face with a t-shirt cannon t-shirt. And then while seated, the t-shirt landed beside me. And then my seatmate just handed it to me like a, like a, just the present that it was. I was like, oh my gosh, maybe my life is really adding up to something. Those are the moments. And then there are the moments when the math makes no sense at all. When the addiction still has a vice grip or the doctor still has no answers or the marriage is crumbling after you've tried absolutely everything. Those moments when no matter how much effort or time or prayer or positive vibes you've put into it, nothing seems to change. It doesn't add up. My name is Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. Today, my guest is someone who has been on the upswing of life, a successful career, a loving wife, all lights had turned green. Until, doesn't that sound familiar? Until he was interrupted by someone else's tragedy that upended his ideas of what really matters when life is stripped to the studs. That encounter with grief has enabled him to narrate the thoughts and fears and prayers we all have when life doesn't add up. Mitch Album is a best-selling author, journalist, screenwriter, playwright, radio and television broadcaster, and musician. No, really, he was in a band called The Rock Bottom Remainders with other literary geniuses like Stephen King and Amy Tan. You'll recognize many of Mitch's fiction and nonfiction books like Tuesdays with Maury, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and Stranger in a Lifeboat because they have collectively sold over 40 million copies and have been made into Emmy award-winning movies. Mitch, I feel so lucky to be doing this with you today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kate. I appreciate your asking me. Your newest work of fiction, Stranger in the Lifeboat, asks, I don't know, maybe the most important question we face in the midst of tragedy and despair, which is, what is the point of a faith without guarantees? How did you, uh, how did you decide to tackle that head on? First of all, Kate, I, I tend to write books, you know, more about uh, a theme, and then I kind of come up with the plot. I, I, I'm not really a writer who says, oh, I have a great character in mind. I want to create a story around him, right? I, I, I have an idea about someone blowing up a shopping mall and create the story about that. I always sort of decide, like, what area I want to be exploring and then see if I can find a story that illustrates it. So when I wrote The Five People You Mean Heaven, which was my first novel, for example, I, I didn't want to write about heaven per se. I wanted to write about people who think that life doesn't matter and that they don't mm. matter. And how could I write a kind of parable that that proved that that wasn't true? And I ended up 
coming up with all this thing about heaven and five people tell you what your life meant on earth, but it wasn't where I began. And so I wanted to write a story about asking for help and then the way that we do or don't accept the fact that it takes a while, maybe sometimes. We want our help, you know, like we're ordering a sandwich and, you know, I want it with mayo and, and cheese and I want it right now. And if it takes five minutes, it's like, what's taking so long? And we're like that with help and God. It's like, well, what's taking? I asked you, I prayed for this yesterday. Why isn't it here today? And so that became the underpinning of the Stranger in the Lifeboat. Now, you notice I've talked way longer than I should have, and I never mentioned the plot of the book. Uh, and that's what I mean, is that all yeah. that went to the thinking before I decided, okay, now the story will be about a bunch of people lost at sea who pull a guy into the boat who claims to be God and what happens there. So all that kind of is the answer. Wonder if we might talk a little bit more about that surprise of like a completely new chapter in your life where you and your beautiful wife don't have kids in a traditional sense. And then quite unexpectedly, you begin to care for an entire orphanage of kids. How did this large and important responsibility fall into your lap? It fell into my lap. That's that's exactly what happened. It fell into my lap. I went down after the 2010 earthquake uh, with a pastor from Detroit who had asked for help because he had had this orphanage and he thought it had been destroyed. And mm -hmm. we flew down there two weeks after the earthquake because I just couldn't get the idea of children being buried under rubble and nobody going for them because who's going to go for them that they're orphans except the person who runs the orphanage. So we went there and um, it hadn't been destroyed, but it had been overrun. And, and so I started to help out and I was just so taken by the kids, their, their, their attitude is, I mean, if you've ever been to Haiti, anyone who's ever been to Haiti and met the children there knows that they're just, they're, they're something else, they're otherworldly. They have an incredible passion and joy and, and happiness despite the world's, you know, second poorest country status. And so I came back and I began to bring people back with me. I went back every month and we were building the place up and building the place up and we built the first toilets, we built the first showers, we built the first kitchen. We, I didn't have any of these things when we first got there. But while we were doing this, I noticed that the kids were still starving. You know, they were only eating one cup of rice a day. And so I went to this pastor and I said, I don't understand. We, I'm coming down every month. I'm bringing all these guys with me. We're putting a lot of money and effort into this place. Why aren't you, you know, feeding the kids better? And he said, well, the truth is, I don't have any money to run this place. And I'm 84 years old and I'm not going to have any money to run this place. And I blurted out and I mean, blurted out like, well, OK, I, I could probably run this place if you want to. I run some charities in Detroit. I mean, how hard could it be? You know, and he basically said, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Here it is. <laughs> he left and um, it fell into my lap and we never saw him again. And uh, I've been running it ever since. And I've made every mistake you can make. I've, you know, I mean, I've, I'm just so, so unprepared. And, uh, you know, like I said, the one thing I'm good at is being consistent. And I told them I would be there every month. They never had a worry. And I've never broken that. COVID took me away a couple of months because we weren't allowed to fly in. So, um, you know, now I've, I've gotten a few things down. I can speak the language and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't get fooled 100% of the time. <laughs> Love really does have a way of like pulling us into unexpected 
entanglements, which I mean, spin us around and pull us in and tie us up to each other. And uh, you write so beautifully about the bossy and adorable Chica. I would love for you to tell me about her. She seems spectacular. Well, I have so many pictures of her around here. I'm half tempted to just grab one of those and show it to you. But the the truth of it is um, Chica... Chica was born three days before the earthquake of 2010, and she survived it when she was inside this little uh, cinder block house, and she was on her mother's chest, three days old, and the earthquake came and the house collapsed, but the roof was made out of tin, and it just slid off the back, and they survived. So you imagine a three-day-old baby survived an earthquake, she was born tough and (laughs) she was always tough. And her mother died two years later in that same cinder block rebuilt structure, giving birth to a baby brother. And she died. So Chica was taken away and she was brought to our orphanage. And for the next few years, she was the bossiest, pushiest (laughs) that we had. I mean, there was, no question who, when Chica yelled, you could hear her across the whole yard. She was like <laughs> Ethel Merman, size one shoes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we just ignored her. And, you know, you can't help but love a kid who's telling all the older kids what they can do and where they can go. <laughs> she, her biggest posture was this, you know, like she'd say like that. And, and uh, uh, you know, she was just Chica. You know, and, and the sentence, oh, that's Chica, was like uttered over and over again. And, <laughs> Age five, uh, when she was really just coming into herself, um, we noticed that her face was beginning to droop, and we took her to a doctor. And yeah, she developed a brain tumor, and there was nobody in Haiti that had any idea even what it was or how they could deal with it. And we brought her north, hoping that we could get surgery done and and uh, you know then bring her right back. And it didn't work out that way. She never went home, and we adopted her, and we spent two years trying to find a cure for something called DIPG, which if there's anybody listening to us who knows what that is, they know that it's basically incurable. And in most cases, the child is gone in four to six months. Chica, we were blessed. Uh, She lived two years and we had an amazing two years with her. And she was funny and sassy and and clever. Like she'd be sitting in the back of the car and she'd be singing do a deer and email deer. And we would say, (laughs) it's not chica it's female and she said what he said it's female not female and she thought for a second she said no it's my mouth i can sing it the way i want to you know that was <laughs> her uh you know or she would say uh i would say i'd sit there like looking at some bills and i'm like oh boy she said why do you say oh boy there are no boys here <laughs> I said, it's just something we say here she said well why don't you say oh girl you know like <laughs> <laughs> the most uh telling thing she ever said to me i always say is uh one time when towards the end of her life was she couldn't walk anymore and uh, i had to carry her around which was fine by her you know she as long as i took her to the bathroom of the car or couch or wherever she wanted to go it was like you know raise her <laughs> arms and okay and I, was, I was a taxi <laughs> and um i was uh I was coloring with her and uh, 
I realized I was late for work and I popped up. I said, Chica, I have to go. And she said, no, Mr. Mitch, stay, stay in color. I said, Chica, I have to work. And she said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. And I said, well, <laughs> not the same thing, Chica, because, um, you know, and she crossed her arms, you know, like that. And she said, no, it's not. Your job is carrying me. <laughs> and uh, yes. I laughed. And then I realized, you know, wow, never going to hear a truer sentence than that. Yeah, and that's right. Was to carry her. And one of my favorite pictures is, is me holding her on, at a birthday party. And she's just looking at me in a, the way that, you know, you every father wants a daughter to look at him. Yeah. And uh, that was the best job I ever had. That was the best thing I ever filled my arms with was her. And, I think, you know, what we carry kind of defines us, you know. And uh, when you're carrying a child, you're you're at your best, you know, you're at your you're at your most useful. Let's put it that way. Yeah. She uh, the insistence of her love is so uh, there's some people who just they they demand to be loved. They their loves need to be carried. And that pull is uh, is the is the best and worst part of being uh, human, isn't it? Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know the, about the worst part, but it's definitely the best part. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, she, I think it's the worst part. I mean, the because it's impossible, because the, what was it? There's only one impossible thing, right? This was from, I was watching Room with a View yesterday. It's the E.M. Forrester uh, book. There's only one thing impossible to love and to part. And I think it's uh, the gorgeous impossibility of, the way we love people is it makes it unimaginable to be without each other. Well, you know, I, I visit that theme a lot in my books uh, because I have lost a lot of people. I mean, my first book that was of national note was about losing somebody that I cared about, my old professor, Maury Schwartz. And, uh, you know, it was a chronicle of slowly losing him. And so I kind of was birthed in lost stories so I'm pretty familiar with that impossible emotion that you're talking about. And it, you're right. It, it is a, it, it's universal. And there's not any book that I write that people don't end up coming up to me and saying, uh, oh, I felt that when I lost somebody or, you know, that was what it was like when you wrote that part. That was it. including this book, which has been out a little bit. And I've had enough reactions from people to know that the part that they react the most to is when one of the characters in the boat asks this God character, why do people have to die? And, you know, yeah. why do you take them? The grand contradiction always being that there's just nothing universal about love. Always. I imagine when people think of you, they know that you're not new to sitting close to the edge of these big questions of mortality. It's something that, um, especially with the book Tuesdays with Maury, that I imagine you get a lot of uh, responses to. You were a big fancy sports writer, you're, you know, wildly successful, and then an old college professor of yours shows up on an episode of Nightline a professor that you'd promised to stay in touch with. 
for people who, who don't necessarily know that story, would you mind telling me about your Tuesdays with Maury? I had been very close to Maury Schwartz when I was in college back in the 70s and, and uh, you know, took all the classes that he offered, majored in sociology because of him and, you know, walked around campus with him, had lunches with him. We were really, he was more like an uncle to me, you know, that, that kind of older person you're always looking for when you go to college, especially if I went when I was very young, I, I got out of school a year early. And so I really needed somebody to kind of look up to. And he was there and he made me promise on the last day of school that I would, you know, stay in touch and all that. And then I broke that promise for 16 years while I was getting very quickly ahead in the, in the broadcasting sports writing field. And, you know, I was just working a hundred hours a week and four or five different jobs. And I was on ESPN television and I was on the radio and I was a syndicated columnist and, you know, I was quite full of my own ambition. You know, I, I hope I wasn't a jerk to other people, but I can certainly say I wasn't thinking a whole lot about them. I was mostly just thinking about myself. And in your early 30s and mid 30s, you can kind of do that. You're healthy enough and everything's going along great. All the lights are turning green for you and you just figure it's going to go on like this forever. And then I saw Maury on Nightline talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die. Mm. And I just happened to be flipping the remote control and happened to catch him. Otherwise, he would have died. The next time I would have heard about it would have been, did you hear that your old professor who you love so much is dead? But instead, I saw him and uh, something clicked in. I felt very guilty and I called him and I was going to just call him once and that was going to be the end of it. But by the time the phone call was done, he had kind of guilted me into coming to visit him. <laughs> so I flew from Detroit to Boston. I visited him. It was going to be once. But by the time I was done with the visit, he had kind of guilted me into coming back again. And uh, I came again and again. And I ended up coming every Tuesday uh for months and months until he passed away and we did this last class together in what's important in life when you really know you're gonna die and it was just me and him the lessons from that wasn't ever supposed to be a book it was just supposed to be this conversations that he and i had and i began to tape record them so that i would have them forever and then uh, i don't know halfway through our time together he told me how in debt he was for his medical bills mm -hmm. and how he that he was going to die and he was going to die twice because his family didn't have the money to pay the medical bills. And so after he died, they were going to have to pay to sell the house in order to pay his bills. And he said, that's going to make me die twice. So mm -hmm. I got an idea that maybe I could help him by, by doing a book because it's all I knew how to do. And I went down to New York, unbeknownst to him, in between the Tuesdays and would try to find a publisher, see if somebody was interested in what was you know, going on between me and him. And almost everybody said no. It was really something when you look back on Tuesdays with Maury, how many people dismissed it just outright, boring, um, depressing. You're a sports writer. You can't write a book like this. And, and I mean, really, if it had been for me, I would have given up because there were so many no's that it's like, okay, I guess it's a terrible idea. But because it was for somebody else, which is one of the great lessons of this, you always try harder, I think, when it's for somebody you care about than for you necessarily for yourself. Like, I don't want to let the person down. So we found a publisher a few weeks before Maury died, and they gave us enough money, just enough money to pay his bills. And I gave it all to him. And I said, here, don't don't die twice, you know. And, uh, you know, he cried. And we had a nice talk. And, and uh, for me, I always say that was the end of Tuesdays with Maury because 
I had finally kind of learned a lesson. I had finally learned to do something for somebody else that didn't involve me, you know, or my career. And ironically, it turned out to be the biggest thing I ever did in my career. What are some of the questions that he would ask that really you think resonate with people? He would ask, uh, have you, are you satisfied with your life? Are you content with your existence? What do you do for your community? I remember that was a big one and it really launched yeah. all the charitable things I do because he said, he said, what do you do for your community? I said, what do you mean? He said, what do you do for charity, for people around you who don't have as much as you do? I said, I, I write checks. And he said, anybody can write a check. You've been given a voice and you need to use that voice for more than just aggrandizing yourself, which was the kind of mm -hmm. thing that Maury would say to me. And I remember it because nobody uses the word aggrandize in a sentence <laughs> ever. You know, I, that year I started my first charity and uh, I, I now run nine charities here in Detroit and the orphanage in Haiti. And uh, that was all from that discussion. So that question was a pretty big question. There's something in Finding Chica that I was really hoping that you would say, and then you tackle it so head on at the end. You've had this front row seat looking backwards at life and then looking forwards at one that was cut short. And I wondered if you would mind reflecting for a minute on, on how different those two things are. How can I best put it? When you lose an elder, when you use a, lose a parent or a grandparent or a mentor, someone who was older than you, you lose direction, but you don't lose hope in the world because it mm -hmm. makes sense to you that, well, this is how the world works. They went sooner than I wanted, but you know that's what's ahead of me. So you lose, you feel like rudderless. Yes. But you, uh, you don't question the, the, the whole world. When you lose a child, it's not that you lose your sense of direction. It's you, you lose your sense of anything making mm -hmm. sense. And everything becomes vulnerable. And anything can happen to you at any time. And all your walls come down that you thought protected you because if this could happen to this little child then what's protecting you what's protecting any of your other loved ones you find yourself as a as a, as a parent although i wasn't chica's parent biologically you know i felt it in every way and and i certainly was assuming the responsibilities my wife and i but but more importantly was the feelings that you get and it's like why her? Why, you know, not her, me, you know, uh, I'll take this off, but let me be the one who's sick. And when you go to a hospital with a sick child and let's say she's in the bed and she has to stay overnight or it's after the surgery and you're taking shifts with somebody, okay, go home and take a shower. And you leave the hospital and you get into your car and you say, I'm leaving the hospital and she's staying in the hospital. There's something the matter with it. 
you know, this. And so all your sense of balance, the way life is supposed to go is off kilter. And that doesn't happen when an older person dies because you've been trained and conditioned to say this is what happens to older people. Eventually, you know, they're going to die. And if, if depending on their age and their proclivities, they've probably said to you, listen, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not, you know, they, they've kind of prepped you a little bit. A child doesn't prepare you. And in fact, the whole time that Chica was sick, she never knew that she had a terminal illness. She yeah. never knew that she had cancer. Why should she? You know, that was what enabled her to play until the end, you know, until she couldn't play anymore. Because when we take her to the doctors, we would just say, we're going to the doctor because, you know, you're having some trouble with walking or whatever. So he's going to help try to fix you up. And all right, you know, and then, you know, give me this. I want to play with that. Why should I say to you, okay, here's here's what a tumor is and here's where it is in your brain and here's what it's going to do to you. That's cruel. Uh, And for a five-year-old and a six-year-old. So. Um, you know, but they don't know. And that burden, you know, like, uh, yeah. I mean, you're going to, you're going to make me cry with these things. Gabe. that's not what, but I remember we were in a, we were in the hospital room once and something happened. I forget what it was, something at my job. And I was on the phone and my wife and I were there and I got all upset over it. And I was saying stuff and we were like about 10 feet away from Chica and she was kind of sleeping. And uh, I said, you know, I can't believe that this is happening. And my, my wife was, and we were kind of going back and forth on it, raising our voices a little bit. And Chica said, hey, guys, hey, guys. And, you know, I, I, we looked over and I went over and said, Hi, what's the matter, sweetheart? She said, um, what, what's, what are you talking about? And I said, it's nothing. It's, it's you know, don't you worry about it. She said, but, um, but. I want you to stop or something like that. And I said, okay, yeah. we will, because I can't make you happy. And like, she's, you realize like she's in the hospital bed, you're arguing over some stupid thing at your job. And she's thinking about, no, I don't want this to go on. Cause I can't make them happy. I like when I make a joke and they laugh and they're happy. You know, that's what it, that's that she reveled in, you know, like she reveled in making us laugh. So it's just everything is upside down. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Uh, I don't care if they were mortal enemy, not that I have mortal enemies. It's it's the worst. One of the reasons I love your brain and listening to you put all these hard things side by side is um, there's such a super highway we create between the most important things that happen, like the most meaningful things that happen to us, and then a desire to immediately simplify it into a series of lessons. And I am like 100% anti lessons because they're in my experience, usually the weaponized piety of the extremely certain. (laughs) And so I never, I never buy the simplicity of like the cliches that we have, like everything happens for a reason, but there's such an intense and important thing that you're putting in front of us, which is Sometimes the worst things that have ever happened to us and the people we love are the things that teach us these profound things. And yet this is a loss that demands to be mourned. And I think a lot of people would be tempted to wrap that up with a bow. And I, uh, I love that you're saying there's, there's wisdom. There's like gorgeous, hard, awful wisdom to be learned. 
in the unthinkable, but nothing like a formula to get out of it, nothing like a, a, a tidy series of answers about ourselves and God. You know, the, the loss of, a, of, of a, and the dealing with those questions, that's, that's kind of been my whole life of writing anyhow, and it sort of leads to The Stranger in the Lifeboat, which I don't think I could have written when I was 37 or 45 or anything. You know, I think I had to write nine books before it to sort of get to the point where you're bold enough, brash enough, or this maybe an even stronger word, to play God in one of your characters. And this, what made the book kind of a challenge, but also interesting uh, in a way that anything different than anything I've ever written, is that these passengers get to ask God all the questions that if I disappeared from this screen and Kate, you had, you know, some creature came on and said, I'm God, I listened to your podcast, um, go ahead and ask. <laughs> Avid listener, amazing, good to hear. First time caller. Strong endorsement. I'm, uh, I'm you know, what do you want to know? And I get to ask those questions in the mouths of these characters. So, you know, for example, the one of them asks at one point, do you answer prayers? And he says, I answer every prayer. But sometimes the answer is no, uh, you know, which is something that I couldn't have written 15 years ago, but I can write now, you know, or finally, the, the biggest one, which I mentioned to you before, is, you know, why do people have to die? And one of the characters who's missing his wife breaks down and says, you know, why did you take my wife? If you're God, then why did she have to die? Why did you take her? And the answer is, why is it that when people die on earth, human beings say, why did God have to take them? Maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us? Mm -hmm. You know, what did we do to warrant or merit their sweetness, their love, their attention? Didn't you have that with your wife? And he says, I had it every day. And God says, well, those memories are a gift, but their absence is not a punishment. People don't die so that I can punish you. I'm not cruel. This is just part of the picture, this part on earth. And I know that you cry when you lose your loved ones here, but I can assure you they're not crying. <laughs> and for me, I could not have written that. I couldn't have written that five years ago because I was too angry. Uh, and and or before that, I wouldn't have known it. But when I think about Chica no longer suffering and no longer crying like she did here when in the pain that she was in here, um, and you realize if you do believe that there's something beyond this world and we're not just worm food, then you can accept that idea of, you know, well, we cry, but they're not crying, you know? And who am I? or my wife to deserve to have a five-year-old when we're in our 50s and to have had that joy for two years. We didn't lose a child, we were given a child. And if you focus on being grateful for being given something, you don't have time to get angry over having lost it. And that, yeah. whether that's a bromide or a simple sentence or whatever, it's the truth. And sometimes truths are just simple like that. When you talk about grief and you talk about the sheer gratitude, not even a big enough word of being given so much love, then I just, I just immediately want to say, uh, amen. When I think about the things I've 
been given that are not anymore. Even though I'm totally scared about the future, I find myself thinking, um, like I look at the past and I think, thank God, those things are already mine. Right. I would never use the word deserve for something that good. For people to go places where people have nothing because it's a great education in how many somethings we all have. And it just enables you to count your somethings and, and the things that you like you well say, you know, they're already in my back pocket. They're already mine. Nobody's taken, nobody reaches into my satchel and gets to take this memory away. You know, yeah. I always thought that that would be a, an interesting premise for a book. It's like you could trade more years, but you had to give away some yeah. of the memories. And how far would you go? Like, okay, you can take away first grade. Okay. Wasn't that great a year? I didn't like the teacher. I don't remember yeah. half of it anyhow. So I won't remember first grade from here on in. Give me five more. Okay. So you get that's like, okay, now you have to take away your first girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> how many years are you going to? Yeah. <laughs> I love it though. I think our future obsessed culture would trade trade the past for the future. And I, I always feel like it's such a, you know, especially when the future isn't that far in front of us. I always think like, what an amazing thing we're given to swim back and forth between hope and gratitude. And then back into the magic of, of this much love. I'm so, I'm so glad we're not just exhausting futurists. <laughs> Thank God for mortality. <laughs> You have this amazing ability to crawl up really close to the edge with the people you love. And it it requires a certain kind of moral courage that I admire, a courage that uh, pulls through all of your work. And I just, I'm so grateful that we could do this today. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure, Kate. Thanks for talking to me. You can learn more about the charitable work Mitch does and support the Haitian Orphanage by visiting havefaithhaiti.org. Here at the Everything Happens Project, we fundamentally believe that being blessed, hashtag blessed, just doesn't mean having the perfect photo on Instagram. But perhaps blessings can come when we least expect them and we most need them. Like when we don't seem to have the answer to why terrible things happen or why we lose the people we love before we're ready to let them go. Perhaps those very fundamental questions of uncertainty can still be places where God shows up in beauty and friendship and in love. So before I go, if you don't mind, I wanted to leave you with this blessing that comes out of our book of spiritual reflections called Good Enough. 40-ish devotionals for a life of imperfection. All right, here goes. It's a blessing for when God seems absent. Comfortable would be if we had formulas and answered prayers and realized hope, but here we are far beyond comfort. So blessed are we when life upends us when we face divorce or miscarriage, financial struggles or job insecurity, when the people we love are tossed about by disease or loneliness or homelessness or addiction, 
Blessed are we when we're afraid, when we don't have adequate answers, when we can't find God anywhere in the midst of this mess. Or we can't find the person we hoped God would be. Blessed are we when we learn to trust that God isn't asleep on the job, that God hasn't forgotten us, that God is still as near to us as our very breath. Blessed are we who have the courage to press on, we who suffer with hope. For even when we've hit rock bottom, may we recognize that we have fallen into God's arms because there is no place so deep or so dark that God's presence cannot reach. All right, my dears, have a lovely day. Here's the part where I get to thank everyone who makes this work at the Everything Happens initiative possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke University, Duke Divinity School, and Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. Thank you for your generous support. And my team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Jesse Broom, Keith Weston, JJ Dickinson, Aaron and Jerry Bowler, Jeb and Sammy. Your gifts make this work shine. I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to Everything Happens wherever you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and if you don't mind, please leave a review when you're there. We really love to hear from you. We always read those reviews and really love listening to your stories. You are really special to us. Find me online at Kate C. Bowler or at katebowler.com. And it's not too late for you to jump in and join the Sadness Lent train. We're inviting you to read along with us as we have a good enough Lent. Learn more and download a free discussion guide at katebowler.com slash Lent. That's katebowler.com slash Lent.